top. Um, uh, gosh, running out. Black. <laughs> Rich. Hibs. Brilliant. <laughs> and how about this one? Slavery. Okay, good. Opposite of slavery is freedom. I want you to note as we read these verses today that in one of the verses he contrasts the word slavery with another word, but it's not freedom because it's something greater than freedom. And we're going to read that together as we read these verses. And this is talking all about what it is like to know God. If you're not a Christian here tonight, you can know God. And Romans 8 is one of the, it's the best chapter of the entire Bible. I think I can say that. Because it tells you all about what knowing God is like and what it feels like. It's remarkable. It's amazing. And I want to take you into these depths tonight. So let's read Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 17. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Say sonship. Sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So if Romans is the Himalayas of the New Testament, as some have described it, chapter 8 is like Mount Everest. And Luke sets this three-peak challenge, three sermons in the the book of, in Romans chapter 8. Last week, Luke opened us with this remarkable peak of Christian experience, no condemnation, no condemnation, no guilt before a God before whom we stood totally guilty. And he said, forgiven, not judged, not guilty, not condemned. That was peak number one. This is peak number two that we're looking at today, that I, you, if you're a Christian, am a child of God, I'm a son. And he uses this word son because he's writing, as as the title of the book suggests, he's writing to a Roman audience. And in Rome, it was very, very common in a Roman household that that you'd have uh, large households of people. And top dog in the household was the master, And then number two was the son. And the son one day would inherit everything. He was the only person of real significance in the household under Roman expectation. Not Christian viewpoint, but in Roman culture. And everybody else in the household was was, was a lesser kind of status. And at the very bottom of the pile were the slaves who just had to do what the master said. Now in this passage we've read today, Paul contrasts being bottom of the pile to being sons, those who one day will inherit everything. That's why he, the translations today, even though it's an old-fashioned idea to, 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 to use the word son rather than children, what he's saying is this, that God elevates you and I as Christians to the highest place in relationship with God. That whether you're male or female today, he says you're God's child, you're his son, you're the one who's going to inherit all of the good things that God has promised. He's not going to withhold anything from you. So 
So we're going to look at this mountaintop today called Sonship. You ready for that? I'm going to take you up a different mountain first. So if you uh, like, you can flick into it. It's in Luke chapter 9. And what you find in Luke chapter 9 is that uh, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, three of the closest disciples to Jesus, they're climbing up a mountain with Jesus one day. They're having a trek. And they get to the top, and they must be pretty tired because Peter falls asleep. It's not an unusual idea in the Gospels. It happens quite a lot. Anyway, something remarkable happens while he's sleeping. It says that Jesus got transfigured. That's mean to say his divinity began to radiate out of him in a way that had never been seen up until that point in his ministry. His face and his clothes became white like lightning is what those verses say. And out of the blue, Moses and Elijah turn up and start having a chat with Jesus about his sufferings that are to come. Anyway, so Peter wakes up. He wakes up from his sleep and he begins to see this thing and he, and he just blurts out because he's about to miss it. He says, oh, should we, should we set up some tents here? And uh, Luke helpfully comments, he obviously knows Peter well enough when he writes it, he says he didn't really know what he was talking about. He was talking nonsense. Anyway, while Peter's talking nonsense, there's a voice that comes out of the cloud from heaven that says, Peter, this is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. Listen to him. So this is the mountain I want to take you up. First of all, it's the mountain of understanding who Jesus is and that Jesus is the loved son of God. He's loved by the Father. In fact, there are occasions in the Gospels like that one where the Father just can't resist but tell everybody, it's Jesus and I love him. He's my son. There was another occasion Peter would have been reminded of, which is when Jesus got baptized. Do you remember that one? And uh, Jesus gets baptized. He'd never done anything in his earthly ministry. He hadn't healed anybody. He hadn't uh, raised any dead people. He hadn't preached. And at his baptism, he comes up out of the water and a dove comes down from heaven. The Holy Spirit comes upon him and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. We get, begin to get this idea that God the Father is passionately excited about God the Son, that he celebrates the Son. The Father celebrates the Son. I don't know if you've ever been to a school sports day. And uh, I, I go to them at our primary school because we've had kids at primary school. And uh, here's the funny thing. The quality of the sport is pretty awful, to be honest. In fact, nobody's there to watch the sport. Nobody cares who wins because there's no winners these days. But what I find is hundreds of mums and dads turn up to go and wave at their child. And why they? I'm looking at these people. Some of them have busy lives. Some of them commute down to London every day. And I think, wow, and you've got the day off to be here? And they look at you like, well, of course I'm here. It's sports day. I needed to celebrate my daughter or my son. And that's why parents go to those sorts of things. That's what the nature of parenting is, it's to celebrate your child. Now, God the Father celebrated God the Son. In fact, Jesus lived his whole life in the awareness of the love that the Father had for him. In John 17, when he's praying to God the Father, he said this word, he said this, this phrase, he said, you loved me before the creation of the world. 
Jesus enjoyed the love of the Father for millions and millions and millions of years, eternity past. And that never grew old for him. Okay, so that's that mountain. You got that mountain in your head? So here's the mountain that Romans 8 is putting us on top of today. The mountain in Romans 8 says that God loves you with that same love. God loves you with the same love that he loves his own son. And these verses are telling us that we are loved by God. If you look at the very beginning of Romans, Romans 1, verse 7, Paul addresses this letter that we're reading today. He says, to all in Rome who are loved by God. And it's a special love. It's not a for God so loved the world kind of love. It's a love for the people of God, a love that the people of God have come into and a covenant love that God has brought into our lives. And this evening in these remaining moments, I want to talk about five significances, five evidences of sonship in our lives because this is something that you and I must, must get into our being that God loves us as his children. And that means a huge, huge amount in terms of knowing him. So here's the first one. That he's rebooted our, uh, our, our DNA, if you like. So here's the verse that we read earlier. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if we live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. I don't know if you ever had that experience of your computer breaking down or, or getting the blue screen of death or, or whatever it is, and you take it to an expert and they say, oh, your computer needs to be rebooted. And they kind of stick a hard drive in it or they do some keys or Alt-Control-Delete or something, or they just turn it off and on, and it all just comes back to life as it should be. Well, this is what God does with us when we are in Christ. And in these verses, it uses slightly odd terminology for us, which we may not immediately understand when we read it. He says, we have an obligation not to the flesh, but to the spirit. And he's, he's talking about these two conditions that the human heart can have. That you can either be of the flesh, that's, that's what he means by that, is to be outside of Christ. It's not to put your faith in Christ. It's to, it's to spend your life saying, no, I don't believe in Jesus, and I don't follow Jesus, and I don't trust Jesus. And in these verses, he's saying, well, that's to be of the flesh, or to live according to the flesh. And when he says to live according to the Spirit, what he's saying is this, no, that, that's to live your life saying, Jesus, come into my life, forgive my sins. I want to follow you and live for you. These are the two places that you can live your life. I wonder in which of those places you are tonight. You can only be in one of those places. But this is what God does when he comes into a a life that is lived according to the flesh, sinful flesh. He reboots our hard drive and he makes us brand new. And he gives us a whole new bias in terms of the way we live and behave. Because our obligation, it says, is no longer to the flesh. It's no longer to that old way of life and how we used to do things. It's a a beautiful obligation to doing the way things that God has made us to do. 
You're not a person of the flesh with some bolt-on extras. You're actually a spirit person with some character things that God is still working out in you. In, uh, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it uses this phrase. It says, Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life is over here. They're saying, this is what God's done in my life. And the law of sin and death is this old power that was working in our lives before we knew Jesus. Let me just do a quick demonstration for you. Here's a book. It doesn't matter if it's a Bible. It's just a book. It's just an object. Okay, are you ready for this amazing science lesson? Are you ready? I'm going to release the book. Are you ready? On the count of three. Here we go. One, two, three. Wow, no surprise. It did exactly what you thought it would do. Why? What law was in effect that made this book plummet to the ground? Thank you. Gravity. 9.81 meters per second squared. Acting down on all of us all of the time. It kind of keeps us our feet on the planet, stops us drifting off to Mars or something like that. And this is the law we live under. It's the law of gravity. I was chatting to Maria uh, Sixton a couple of months ago. She went to Kenya, and in Kenya there's an equator line. And you can go and visit a place where the water flows down a sink a different direction on either side of the equator line. It's like, well, on this side it's like this, and on this side it's like this. See, the law of God at work in your life, the law of the Spirit gives you a whole new set of biases towards life for Christ. God is at work in us. He's rebooted us. Here's the second thing he's done. He's reprogrammed our sense of calling. He's making us grow in Christ-likeness. So this verse we read, it said, If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. It's an odd way of putting it, isn't it? The misdeeds of the body. What do you mean by that? He's talking about sin. He's talking about the stuff we do wrong. But he calls them misdeeds. Because the opposite of a misdeed is just a deed. It's a doing. It's just life. It's doing life. And what he's saying is this. When you live in the life of God, in the life of the Spirit... Just like a computer programmer would find uh, glitches in his or her program, bugs. They're just bugs that can be patched and fixed. They're not the thing that defines the whole program. They can be sorted out. Misdeeds are those remaining things that God wants to sort out in your life, that between now and eternity, he will sort out. He reprograms us. In Romans 1 verse 7, it says, To those who are loved by God and called to be saints, that's who you are. That's who you are, called to be saints. It means holy ones. That's your identity now. When it talks about us being sons of God, to be a son isn't to be free from any constraint. To be set free from slavery doesn't simply mean, well, I can just do whatever I like from now on. It means, this, it means to come into the lifestyle 
and the joy and the expectation of being a son. Tim Keller used this illustration. He said, if you want to liberate a fish from the aquarium and set it free, you don't just throw it into the air, you release it into the sea for which it was designed. When God makes us sons, he's releasing us to be the very people he's called us to be, to relate to God in a life of holiness and love for him. There was a story a friend of mine told me. He went to visit a friend of his and they'd got a new dog. And he went around, he was just chatting to this guy and looking at the dog. And it was dinner time for the dog, so he got out the dog food When he got the dog food out and opened the tin, this dog went absolutely berserk. And it started running in an uncomfortably tight circle around the table leg, like this. And my friend said, well, what's what's going on with this puppy? You know, why is he like this? And the owner said, well, it's a sad story because he's a rescued dog. And his previous owner just had him chained very tightly to a post in the garden where he could scarcely move. All he could do was run around in circles around this post all day. And the only excitement he got was when somebody threw some food out the back door to feed him. And when that happened, he would run around extra excited around the post. And he said, and he just can't get it out of his system, even though he's a free dog now and he's a loved dog. He said, still, whenever that food comes out, he goes back to type. If you have a slavish understanding of your relationship with God, then you'll always defer to type. You'll always defer to saying to yourself, well, that's what I'm really like. That's just who I am. I always kind of go back to that behavior. I always end up hurting people. But when you're a son, you understand that that old way of life is no more. And God, by the Spirit, enables you to live the life for which he's called you and the freedom he's called you to. Here's the third thing that, that, that shows us about sonship. We're redirected by the Spirit. Verse 14 says this, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. He kind of puts it, round a different way than we might think. We might say, if you're a child of God, you'll be led by the Spirit of God. That would kind of sound better grammatically and and logically. But he's making an even more profound point. He says, when you see people who are being led by the Spirit and making decisions by the Spirit, what's the most stressful stuff we face in life? I'd hazard a guess for most of us here, there'd be all sorts of stresses, but many of the stresses we face are to do with making decisions. Would I be right? You know, what, what are we going to do? Where are we going to get our money from? What are we going to spend our money on? What are we going to prioritize? Am I going to be single? Am I going to try and get married? Am I, are we going to try for kids? And how many kids are we going to have? Can, can we afford this? Can we go there? Shall we move to this place? All of these things. Now, if you have a slavish mentality, you're just kind of trying to follow a script or trying to follow worldly wisdom, or you're just searching for answers on Google as to what you should do. But if you're a son of God, you have this trust in a father who loves you and says, I'm going to lead you every step of the way. And the Spirit of God 
promises to fill us and to lead us. You know, there's no decision that you can make that the Spirit of God can't help you with. And it saves us from just being like every other person in our generation and just following the wisdom of the age or the wisdom that perhaps our parents have shared with us or our our upbringing or our peers have kind of led us to believe. At times, that will mean if you're a Christian, you'll do things that are different than what others might have expected you to do. You might take the job that other people said, well, I, I didn't think you'd go for that one. For some of you, you'll take a promotion that you didn't want. For some of you, you'll refuse a promotion that others thought you'd take. For some of you, you'll move to a place where others say, well, that's a long way away. But you say, yeah, but I just, I just feel this is what God's calling me to do. I love that Chris mentioned that in the notices earlier. They moved from Eastbourne to Edinburgh because they felt God telling them to. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. It's the evidence. I went into Sainsbury's a couple of months ago with my son Sam. It was was quite late one evening. There wasn't anybody else in the shop and I think the cashier was a little bit bored and we just went to pay for our stuff and and, uh, she just looked at me and my son Sam and she just stood back. She said, whoa, father and son. (laughs) Like, yeah. (laughs) She said, you guys look identical. Sam was pretty pleased about that, I can tell you. (laughs) Do you know, it says in Philippians 3, verse 21, that one day God will transform our bodies to be like Jesus' glorious body. One day, you and I will bear all the resemblances of Jesus, the Son of God. And people will look and say, whoa, you're the God family. You're part of his family. And in this life right now, the way, we lead our, the way we live our lives, being led by the Spirit, is to represent the very life of Jesus. In fact, that phrase, to be led by the Spirit of God, you might have, as we read that phrase, you might think, where, where have I heard that phrase before, to be led by the Spirit? And the answer would be in Luke chapter 4, where it says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Jesus lived his life led by the Spirit. When you're led by the Spirit, you look like Jesus, you behave like Jesus. That's what God has called you to be and that's what he makes you as a son, to be led by the Spirit. Slaves follow lists of rules, but sons know that they're built for relationship. Here's the fourth one. Are you still with me? I know it's a Sunday evening, I know we're tired, but here we go, keep going. Number four, he, the, the, if you're a son, then you are released from fear. Verse 15. It says, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. If you have a slavish mentality in your relationship with God, you think all that matters is your obedience. And all that you become obsessed with is how well you're doing or not doing. Slaves never have the assurance of knowing if their behavior meets the mark. Obedience implies favor, which then leads to some very insecure and fearful behavior. That's why he says, 
he, he releases us from fear. Now, we live in a pretty anxious world these days. Pretty much everybody I meet feels anxious about something these days. Here's one of the signs of sonship, that God frees us increasingly from anxiety in our lives. And he does that first of all in our relationship with him because he forgives all of our sins. We don't have to worry if our behavior meets the standard because all of our sins have been forgiven. When we come to God and we say, God, I've been a bit of a rascal this week. I've done this and I argued with my wife wrongly and I, and I, I, I was mean to that person. God has forgiven it all. He's forgiven it all. We don't need to be fearful in our relationship with him. Here's the, the second thing he's done. He's delivered us from, from the law of sin and death. He's delivered us from the power of death. Nobody talks about death in our culture because we're scared stiff of it. Nobody wants to talk about it. We prolong our lives as long as we can without mentioning it. But sons can talk about their future because their future goes beyond their death. Because death is simply a doorway to glory. It means we're going to be with him forever. But beyond that, because we have a father who loves us, because he's put the spirit of the son into our hearts, we can be secure in the very normal stuff of life, knowing that God will always be with us. I don't need to be anxious about stuff because the Bible tells me that he knows how to clothe the flowers of the field and the birds of the air and he will surely feed and clothe us. I don't need to be anxious about my life because he knows the hairs on my head. We don't need to get anxious about our marital status because the God who created marriage is a wonderful gift, also became a single man and lived his life in total satisfaction with God. Jesus didn't get anxious. I don't need to get anxious about my identity. There's so many shouts for yours and my identity these days. Who are you? There's so many things that are saying, well, define yourself this way or that way. Well, if you're a son, you don't need to worry what people are shouting at you because there's another voice speaking into your life that says who you are. And he, more than that, he knows who you are. He knows who you are and he says that you're loved and that you're a child of his. You don't need to worry about your future Psalm 139 says, all of your days are written in his book before one of them comes to be. You don't need to get anxious about your sorrows. Psalm 56 says that he keeps your tears stored up in a bottle. That's how much he cares for you. But you know what? It's more than just a theological statement. If, if you were to ask me, well, how do, you, how do I know that God loves me? I'd do two things probably. The first would be this, I'd point you to the cross of Jesus. And I'd say, Jesus so loved you that he died on a cross for your sins and for mine. And he did that because he had you in mind. 
and he stretched out his arms because he loved you. We always look back to the cross. If you're unsure of the love of God for you, look first of all to the cross and study the cross of Jesus where the Son of God became flesh on your behalf and took your sin on your behalf so that you might have his righteousness. But, but I don't know if you heard the story of the elderly couple. And uh, late on in the, their years, the, the, the wife said to the husband, she said, well, why, do you never, why, you, why do you never tell me that you love me? And the husband looked confused and he looked at her and he said, well, I told you once and if it changes, I'll let you know. And sometimes as Christians, we can be a bit like, well, no, the cross tells us that Jesus loves us. The cross tells me that God loves me. That's all I need to know. But these verses tell us that's not all. Yes, we need to know that. But by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit testifies with our spirits daily that we are God's children. How do you know that you're loved by God experientially? It's by the Holy Spirit. God putting the Spirit in your life, in my life. And it assures me that God loves me. I'm loved. I'm a child. He died on a cross for me and he poured out the spirit into my life so that I could know that love day in, day out. That spirit that cries, Abba, Father. That word Abba, it's an Aramaic term. Jesus spoke Aramaic and he's quoting the, the word for father that Jesus used which was the greatest term of intimacy and the greatest term of respect that you could have for, for a father. And Jesus used that, that term in the Garden of Gethsemane to address his father God. And these verses are saying, this is the relationship with God that we have. We call him Abba. We call him Father. In the same way that Jesus did in his darkest moments of human life. And the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Here's the fifth, final significance of being a son, that we will one day be rewarded. We're shaped by a future inheritance. Verse 17 says, now we are children. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So here's the nature of being a son. There's looking back at the past that Jesus died for me. There's the experience of the present that the Spirit fills me and helps me to know that God loves me right now. But then more than that, we get to discover the best is yet to come. There's an inheritance to come. If you're a son, then one day God will give you everything. Isn't that amazing? He'll give us everything. I think it's amazing. Here's something I've noticed. Being a parent, uh, if, if you know me, you'll know something about me, which is I just love chocolate. I do. I just love chocolate. In fact, I have a secret stash of chocolate in my house. And when we had young kids, it wasn't a problem because they didn't know where the stash was hidden. But as the kids grew up, and as they get taller, I had to keep moving it up a shelf so that they couldn't reach my chocolate. And then, over time, I'd notice that they grew taller, and they'd be able to climb up on top of units, and I'd find even my youngest son, Ben, kind of reaching to the higher shelves in the kitchen in search of the good stuff. Here's another thing I discovered. All of the bedrooms in our house are filled with children these days. 
And uh, I, which meant I, for years I've had no kind of space that I could call my own, a desk and a chair. And I finally found a corner of the landing upstairs this year. And I managed to clear it out and I put a desk in there and one of those little swivel chairs and I declared it to be Dan's territory. I'd only just kind of set it up and I was really pleased with it. And I put my stuff on it, arranged it all nicely. I came back one day and my 12-year-old daughter... I found her spinning on my spinny chair and she'd moved all my stuff off the desk and she'd replaced it with her stuff. And she looked at me and she said, Dad, I think we should share this desk. I was like, this is outrageous. But this is the nature of life, isn't it? That one day, my children will get everything. They'll get everything. They'll get everything that belongs to me and Julie. It will belong to them. Jesus, in the story of the prodigal son, at the end of the story, when the father is dealing with the older brother who'd stayed at home, who felt under-celebrated by his father, the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. That's how the father really felt about his son. It all belongs to you. Everything I have belongs to my kids. One day, God will give everything to you. The Bible says the meek will inherit the earth. The meek will inherit the earth. God's going to give you the earth if you follow him. One day, it says, the saints, you and I will judge fallen angels. God will never withhold good gifts from his children. He has an inheritance for you that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And all of this is because you are in Christ. But it finishes with this this verse that you might think, why has he put that in there? Why did he finish on this note? If indeed we share in his sufferings, that we may also share in his glory. You think, well, I thought he was talking about the good stuff. Why does he then start talking about suffering again? Let me ask you this question. Let's talk about Jesus for a moment. Is Jesus now in glory. Yes, yeah, he is. He's at the right hand of God. Has he been rewarded? Yes, he has. Did Jesus suffer? Yes. Was he tempted? Was he persecuted? Yes. Did he experience rejection and isolation? Yes. Jesus in his humanity experienced all of those things, and I dare say that many of us will experience those things as well. What that verse is saying to us is this, that any time we experience any one of those things, it's a reminder that we are united with Christ. And every time opposition or persecution or suffering or sorrow comes your way, you're to receive it and to say, this is a reminder that one day I will share his glory. That's what it means when a Christian suffers, that one day you'll share in his glory. You're a son. You're a child of God. You're shaped by this glorious future. You're freed from the baggage of fear. You're led by the Spirit, just like Jesus was. And you're being made more like him in your behavior. And there's a gravitational pull on your life that is pulling you towards him every day. This is what it means to be a son.